The Dice Man Cometh! Welcome to episode 309 of Australia and the Southern Hemisphere's premier tabletop board game dice podcast radio show thingamabob. It's Garth here, Leon. We've got a very special guest and I have to say, happy new financial year. It's really, really good that we're able to now write off all those board game expenses that we had for the last financial year. And now we get to rack them all up again and very lucky that I'm joined by someone who will always spend every spare cent he's got on his tax refundable board games. Leon, how are you going? I'm very, very well. And I don't spend every single cent. I mean, yes, of course... I obviously turned my garage into a gaming room when I bought this new house. And obviously I wrote that off to tax because, you know, I am a professional media journalist, board game type. <laughs> I can't yeah. even say that because it's, it's just so not true on so many levels. Uh, but yes, it is the new financial year. Hooray. And money will be spent as always. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, we are very lucky and we have got a very special guest joining us today, as has been a bit of a theme over the last couple of months of episodes. But before we get to that, Leon, mm. we've got a little bit of news that we need to share with Dice listeners, don't we? We certainly do. Something that they may have picked up from themselves, but now we're going to give you the uh, official of what's going on. Now, a lot of people would know that we didn't actually start this little old podcast, did we, Garthy Boy? No, we didn't. In fact, you and I were hardly born when this started seven odd years ago, when it was mm. just the Trent and Mark show. We finally, finally got rid of Trent a few years back because, oh man, he just loved the sound of his own voice a little bit too much. And now... Well, that's, that's very true, except you accepted him into your family yeah. instead, which, I mean, that's, that's just amateur, but still. Well, that's Tasmania, everyone's family here. Very true. But now we've got another announcement to make because Mark Rickards, founding Dice Man, has decided to pull up stumps and just sit on the lounge at home. I know. I mean, after only 300 episodes, that's, that's hardly an inning. He hasn't even faced the ball. And I'm sure he's enjoying the fact that I'm attempting to make cricket references <laughs> <laughs> while talking about him and pretending I know what, what a cricket is. So he's actually uh, sent us in a little message that we're going to be playing for you, which I will enter into the edit right now. Hello, everyone. It's Mark here saying hello and goodbye. That's right. I've decided it's time to hang up my Dice Man hat, but I'm going to leave you in the more than capable hands of Leon and Garth to continue on with what we've been doing for over 300 episodes now, producing quality content about board games and the Australian board gaming scene. Now, I know they're not going to have anyone to help them with an encyclopedic knowledge of board games, particularly those board games from before 2010. But hey, they've got youthful enthusiasm and... Um, well, they've got youthful enthusiasm, so I really hope you keep supporting them. I just wanted to take this opportunity to say thank you so much to everyone that I've met and interacted with during my time in the Dice Man. It's been a fantastic six and a half years, but I really decided that I need to uh, to hand on the baton. So you all take care out there. Keep supporting the guys. They'll keep putting out quality content, I'm sure. And take care. Who knows? We might see each other sometime at a gaming event in the future. But in the meantime, love to you all. Bye. So, yeah, there you go. So that was his closing words to everybody. But don't fret. He's not going to be gone forever and ever. As he said before, he's still a part of our gaming group. He's still our friend. He's still everything. No hard feelings. All good. And who knows? He may even join us for a special episode or two down the track. But at the moment, he just wants to kick the feet up, play games, and enjoy himself. And I can not argue with that in the slightest, especially during this Tasmanian weather. Absolutely. Yes, I caught up with him around the table playing Call of Cthulhu on Sunday. He is very happy to be just playing games for fun. And what better things can you do? So I think in very typical fashion and taking a little bit of inspiration from Top Gear, actually, I remember them talking once when they said and they'd made a pact that if one of them ever died in a car accident, it'd basically be and they're dead on with the show. So... Mark as a Diceman is dead, so 
So on with the show. Yes, because we're no longer playing board games for fun. No, we're doing it for the burden that we've always seen it as to get this content out there for everybody. And we're going to continue flaming corpse and all. <laughs> Absolutely. So, look, we better introduce our special guest uh, for this particular week. He has come all the way from his man cave slash shed in the nation's capital. It is the one and only Charles Bishop from LFG. Hello, Charles. How are you? I'm well, Garth and Leon. Thank you very much for having me on on this balmy Canberra night where it's about 12 degrees up here. There we go. Um, I'm not quite sure what's happening, but it's warm for tonight, so I'll take this one night of warmth. You must be (laughs) sweating bullets, mate. That sounds crazy. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Absolutely. Well, look, you, uh, you met Mark over several gaming conventions. Do you, do you care that he's left? Well, actually, Mark and I ironically go a long way back. Yeah. Oh, Mark was, yes. Mark yes, was actually do tell. Mark was actually a second year at Ad for when I arrived there as a first year on the sixteenth of January, nineteen eighty-seven. <laughs> and I think from memory, he was in nine or ten division, and I was in eleven division, and they were all part of Charlie Squadron. So he was one of my tormentors. Not that I actually remember him because I had some very special and close tormentors that were specialer <laughs> and closer than he was. So, yes, it, uh, and they were the very early days of ADFA, which have been now consigned to history, shall we say. And um, for the best. Thank goodness there was no social media when we were young. Well, it was, it's definitely history because that date you mentioned before... 1987 before April of that year, I have no recollection whatsoever because, because I wasn't born yet. <laughs> yes, and I, uh, I hosted a cadet at ad for about three years ago and I took my son into the lines or the accommodation as we used to call it. And I said to Joshy, this is the kind of room I used to stay in. And I turned to Jostin and I said, what were you doing in 1987? And he said, I hadn't been born yet. <laughs> and that was that. I was officially old. At that stage, I became old. Well, yeah. as Mark said, apparently, youthful exuberance and enthusiasm is all me and Garth have. So there you go. Yeah, yes, we'll and some it. of us spent a long time trying not to grow up. <laughs> Damn right. So we better talk about something that hopefully keeps us all young, and that, of course, is board games. Now, Charles, you've got a, a bit of a history in this, and I wanted to sort of start off with your your gaming history. When did you start into into this hobby in any way, shape, or form? Can you remember back then? Was it yep. sitting around the you know mess hall playing a game of cards, or where did um, it all start? It was earlier than that. I um I grew up in a family with no television, so yep. we played a lot of card games. We played a lot of five hundred. We played a lot of. Um, we would go to the local hall at a place called Junction View, which was up the head of the creek outside Gatton, which is halfway between Brisbane and Toowoomba, and we'd have Euchre nights. Okay. So, and then we played a lot of gin rummy. So I grew up playing a lot of cards. Um, and then somewhere or another along the way through, I mean, Gatton at that stage, not that advanced in a board game industry kind of <laughs> sense, you could say. And I was on a farm about 15 kilometres to the south of it. But I... Um, somehow or another got into them and certainly when I restarted my board gaming with my son when he played Labyrinth uh, I I took him and we learned Labyrinth and then Catan etc my mother I rang my mother and I explained to her this is my early 30s how much I loved board games and how I'd found this whole genre and in my mother's very dry sense Fitzy said to me well, you can come and get all the ones that are here at the farm. <laughs> so I went back and had a look and uh, I had a copy of second edition Talisman. I had a Jetco Field Marshal, which yep. was the old hex-based Field Marshal. I had a game of Buccaneer. I had a couple of games called Godsfire, which was a 3D attempt at a galaxy building game. Um and then I also have a copy of Sid Meier's Civilization with mm. the big paper American map. So clearly at that young age, somehow or another, I accessed through Brisbane or places like that, a series of board games. So my earliest memories of board games are probably about 11 or 12. Great. Um, playing with friends in Gatton. That's, that's excellent and so much better than just ruining your brain around an idiot box, eh? Well, and we... I then got into miniatures and did World War II plastic miniatures and then 
did a bit of Traveller role-playing. We didn't have Dungeons & Dragons, but we had Traveller, which I've just got back into the, sto- into the store as a stock item now. Nice. Um, very excited. Uh, and so did a little bit of role-playing, a little bit of miniatures, uh, and then um, pretty much that was, that was sort of my exposure at that age. And a lot of it was, I think, mail order. Yeah, okay. Fantastic. Yeah. That's pretty good. See what happened, Leon, before Kickstarter days? That was pretty impressive, the effort you had to go to just to play a game, hey? I mean, the idea that any of those games ever made it onto a rural farm in Australia is mind-boggling to me, but it's, it's absolutely great that it did, and I'm very pleased that it did. And are you telling me, Charles, that a, a farm in regional uh, East Coast Australia didn't have squatter? Actually, I didn't. Um, our friends had squatter, and one of them had a Wild West game where you used to pay for gunslingers. And the more you paid, the further the gunslinger was out towards the edge of the board. And then you would turn a big revolving disc and eventually your gunslinger would fall into the <laughs> ground. And um, so, no, we, we didn't have squatter. We did have Monopoly. Um, Surely yeah, no, Test Match um, made an appearance? Test, uh, no, we didn't. The Garmeisters had Test Match and that was a pretty big deal because they were, you you know, one of the other local families that was a big farming family. And so it was a bit of a game of who had what games out there. Um, The thing about squatter is, unfortunately, it's a very close representation of farming and therefore completely depressing as a game, unfortunately, (laughs) because it is remarkably accurate that your sheep die and then there's floods and droughts. And so coming from a farm, there was a little bit of like, I can see that there's a good game here, but it's just not making me feel happy. <laughs> yeah, you, you, want, you want games to escape reality, not to immerse yourself in even more of it. Yes, but look, and, uh, speaking of which, probably the other one I remember, there was one called, I think it was Time Traveller, where you were, an M, you were a Vietnam guy with an M16 and the flux kept appearing and would drag you back to dinosaur age and then dinosaurs would appear. So at any given stage, you might be on a board with a couple of Roman centurions, a dinosaur, and a future alien trying to hunt you down. And then the flux would appear and suck some or all of you into another time period. So we had a lot of fun. That sounds fantastic. Now, fast forwarding, just looking through your your LinkedIn page, Charles, because I did do a little bit of research. This Toy and Games Expo thing, where did you get involved in that? Yeah, so... All that goes back to Phil Davies, who used to own Mind Games in Albury. Yep. Um, he started something called the Australian Games Expo in about 19, sorry, 2007. Yep. Um, and had a vision of making a sort of mini Essen in Australia, which for reasons that we can talk about if we've got time, but is complicated, but basically involves us being a long way from the rest of the world. <laughs> I've got to say, I can sum that up very quickly in one word. Distance, I believe, would be. Yes, and Paul Keating, Paul Keating had a very um, interesting assessment of where we were, but it's basically right. Distance is a killer for us. Yeah. So he, he ran that there for three or four years, and then in about 2009, I ran the Settlers of Catan titles for him here at CanCon, I think. And then in the following year, he said, would we... You know, he had this, he'd reached a certain age where he could see that he wanted someone to carry it further forward. We were running the Dobell Cup International Chess Tournament at that stage. And um, he basically said, uh, would we like to carry it forward as the next people? I think we did two years at CanCon and then we retitled it the Toy and Game Expo and took it to Sydney. Uh, the vision being that we would get Hasbro and the other big toy companies on board to bring families in through toys and then expose them to games. Yeah. That was the, that was the big vision. Excellent. And it lasted for, for quite a few years in Sydney, didn't it? We had, uh, I think we ran four years in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, three or four. Definitely three, maybe four. Uh, the the challenge, unfortunately, at the end of the day, is a product life cycle challenge. Yep. So Hasbro and Mattel and the other big toy companies have a very their products have a very short lifespan. 
they make them and they really need to sell them within eight to 12 weeks. Yep. And anything that's left after that, it has no validity. It's often tied to a movie or it's tied to a product line like um, kids' toys and it has a very limited span. So what it means is if you're trying to do a multi-year expo, they find it hard to commit in a marketing sense because they don't actually know what they'll have in 12 months' time um, to support you. That makes it tricky. I mean, it's a little bit different in gaming, but even so, it's it's all about when you release a game, getting those first couple of weeks of sales now before it's consigned to to somewhere further back on the shelf, I guess, isn't it? So, so not much has changed. Yes, that's true. I think the advantage games have is that there are evergreens. Yep. So if you look at a brand, you know, look at a brand like something like Nerf, um, a lot of the blasters will turn over. You know, there isn't, there isn't a demand in the general public for a four-year-old blaster. But if I look at board games, I go, I think Wingspan will still be selling in five years' time. Yep. Uh, I can still sell in the store Puerto Rico. As you should. As I should, you know. But, um, <laughs> but there are, you know, Stone Age, all those sort of games, there is a little more uh, longevity for the Evergreens. Yeah, I guess you've got a different level of collecting as well in that sort of space. You've probably, you've certainly got your hardcore collectors in any of the genres, but there's there's probably in gaming a bit more of the, I collect and I play the games as well, rather than just keep them pristine in a, in a shrink wrap box um, for, yeah. for looking at. Yeah, I think so. And I think, I think the other thing we're seeing with gaming is that, um, is when somebody comes new to the hobby, you can actually track them back in time. Yeah, okay. So they come new, they go, I've played Wingspan, it's awesome. I've played Terraforming Mars, it's awesome. What else have you got like that? And I can say, well, here's Concordia. Mm-hmm. And they go, well, is this a new game? So no, no, this game's, Concordia might be 10, 15 years old now. Yep. Um, but it is in the genre of what you are, you are liking as a game. And it's therefore likely to be one that you and your group will enjoy. That is fantastic. And I did want to ask about that with, with the fact of, you know, running a, a board game store, do you find that your primary focus when you're behind the counter there is, is education, advice and direction and the selling just becomes secondary to that? Cause it just happens by, by those conversations you have with customers. Two things happen. Firstly, they, Gaming groups, both within the store and generally in the community, are excellent sources. So people go and they play something with their friends or they play something at a gaming group on a Sunday and they'll come in. One of the reasons we've set LFG store up and the expos up the way we have is you've got to try before you buy. If you're asking somebody to spend 80 to $120 on a game, buy three of them that you never play, that's a fair chunk of money. Absolutely. Except so, Leon, that's just chump change. <laughs> yes, but he's into the miniatures and we all know what that's like. <laughs> so I think that's the interesting thing is uh, we, one of the easiest things in the world to do in a marketing sense is to sell a product you're passionate about. Yes. And I, we've set up a store membership, for example, which runs for six months and people pay a certain amount of money and I think it's 125 for the middle level for six months. And that gets them a percentage off in the store, but more than that, it actually gets them the ability to take home one of the games from the games library. Uh And we've got a family that I don't think has bought a game in the store yet, but they would have taken home 10, 15 or 20 games. Yep. But at some stage they're going to go, some of those games they will buy for Christmas or they will buy for presents or things like that because they've had a decent chance to try them out and they will get back to the table again. Yeah. So, and that's, that's clever. And I think in, in retailing space, you've got to try and think outside the box and rather than just, uh, compete always on price, although it's always super important, you've got to be able to offer some form of customer service and, and just something different to, to encourage people to come back and buy from, from you as the retailer, as opposed to the myriad other options. Yeah, and it's also got to be a good thing now today with all the different social media and the fact that you can ask anybody. If you're sitting at home going, I wonder what this game's like, 
you get onto any sort of form of social media, you can flat out ask somebody or you can go to YouTube and then there's 10,000 videos of some of the best salesmen you'll come across telling you how good it is. So it'd be nice to have half the work kind of done for you to begin with, which is nice. And I think that's another key thing is that I say to all our customers now, go to YouTube and look up the how to play video. Yeah. Don't open the rule book, watch the how to play video and then open the rule book and work out the three or four rules that you're still a bit confused about because that, and that is actually a big barrier breakdown for a lot of people. They go, Oh, okay. That's, that's, that makes my life easier in being the person that's going to have to teach this game to others in my house. Yeah. Sorry, Leon. It's, it is great to see that so many games are just doing this thing and just saying on the front of the rule book, go to the video. You'll see someone who's an expert teach you how to play it because it is the biggest thing that stops people from playing their scrabbles and monopolies and games that everyone grew up with as a kid to this little bit more of the, the heavier side of things. So it's I was going to say that's, that's the only reason why Monopoly is still what it is, is because it's been ingrained in society that everyone knows how to play it. You can sit it down in front of somebody right now. I haven't played it in a decade. I still know every rule. Well, nobody actually the knows the rules, rules. properly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the <laughs> international house rules, of course, everybody knows. So if we can get that kicked out of people's head and have everyone know the rules to say ticket to ride is a, social, a thing that everybody in the world knows, that would be much, much better. But then you get people like Garth that just won't play it. So, you know, you can't win them all. <laughs> I haven't got a copy. Oh, you're a horrible human being. <laughs> so, Charles, honestly, does it hurt every time you have to sell a copy of Monopoly? Um, I was a board game snob when I opened the store. Yep. I refused to stock Monopoly. I didn't stop jigsaws, not through any particular thing. And then at some, I didn't stop, you know, and then at some stage I looked at myself and I did a little bit of a, an introspection and went, you don't have the right. Yeah. You don't have the right to say to somebody who comes in the store and says, I want to buy, you know, to say, I don't have it because you don't think, because you think it's common or because you think it, you don't have that right. So I now stock all of those games um, because if, I want to, if you want to walk into the store and that's what you want and you leave happy because that's what you took with you, then actually we've achieved our mission. Absolutely. Which is actually, and interestingly, I failed once in the last six months. A lady <laughs> walked in and said, I just want a copy of Snakes and Ladders. And I cannot for the life of me find a copy of Snakes and Ladders, <laughs> the stock in the store. I tried to... She just, that was what she wanted. I tried yeah. to say there are, there are 1,400 other titles here. Nope. <laughs> just want snakes and ladders. Yeah. All right. Okay. I have not achieved my mission on this one. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you just can't win them all, can you? You can't win them all. <laughs> so how's it been over this whole COVID situation being a, a retailer and, and a board game retailer at that? Because... You know, it must be a very different environment than you've been used to. Yeah, I think it's, uh, we were really, we've done quite well. Um, you were talking before about price and online sales. One of the other realizations I came to after about six months was that I wasn't going to try and compete with online. Yeah. I can't. It's, uh, this is a box selling game. And if you're just going to play the game of I'm selling you a cheaper box, you're doomed. Yes. Um, you can't run a brick and mortar store and you can't employ someone. So we changed our mindset on that. So the first thing that when COVID arrived was we said to Andrea, you know, Lara and I, cause I, my wife, Lara is an amazing support to me in the store and all the events and things like that. Uh, she, you, you can't run the things we've run without a spouse partner who is willing to actually let you do them. Mm. Um, so uh, we said to Andrea, firstly, you know, you've got a job for a year. Don't know how this COVID thing's going to roll out, but Lara and I will make sure you've got a job for a year. Wow. And then we basically shut down all the tables and we sat down. We turned off the air conditioning. We left open the front door because you've been there. Um, it's a little suburban shop. Uh, we packed up all the tables and that was sad. That yeah, was actually emotionally really hard to pack all the tables up and take them upstairs. 
because that's the spiritual heart of the store is the tables. Of course. Yeah. Um, so we did that. Uh, and then things have actually gone quite well. Uh, a lot of people found us because they suddenly started looking for board games. Yep. The prime minister announced that an essential shopping trip involved going and getting jigsaws. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you cannot buy that kind of like all things. You can't buy that kind of marketing for, for anything. Um, and then That's why it's Scotty from marketing. Yep. And then literally you can't buy jigsaws either now because <laughs> they're all gone. Uh, so, and now we're in the sort of upswing for us. We've got school holiday programs starting next week. Yep. Um, we have about 30 kids a week in the store doing D&D as after school programs. So that's all starting to come back to, back to a manageable thing. We still have to, we're still a couple of tables down. So we're now just trying to manage our way back out in a, in a reopening of the event space within the store. Yeah. Oh, sense. That's great that you've been able to to keep, you know, the doors open as much as possible for, you know, online selling and obviously, you know, getting getting staff uh sorry people back in there and playing games is gonna you know bring that joy and excitement back into the, the physical space and, and bring so much fun to people who have been dying out for that social you know social contact that gaming yeah. brings you know still keeping obviously you know distances where appropriate but you can play games online and you can play games around a video conference but nothing replaces just sitting at a table being able to you know talk garbage with your friends over a game yeah, and for me, for me, it is all about the people. And I, I really struggled personally. Mm -hmm. um, at one stage, I was stock-taking every day. Andrea, we're going to do A today. Yeah. I'll just come down to the store for a couple of hours and we'll just chat. And whoever happens to turn up, I'll chat to them as well. <laughs> Tomorrow, we'll do B. Um, so the first 26 days were fine. Yeah, I'm not built for the, the other three members of my family are built for isolation. I am not built for isolation. I am built for people. <laughs> well, I remember we spoke on the phone a couple of times and you were up running up and down mountains and uh, you, know, you were doing your best to keep out and active as well. Yeah, that was having, having a Kelpie, an Australian Kelpie means you've got to be out all the time. Yeah. <laughs> now, so that's why I have three cats because it means I have to stay inside and yes. play the PlayStation all day. Because if they don't all get lap time with daddy, well, they're going to be trouble. grumpy. It's <laughs> trouble. Yeah. So look, um, I wanted to ask though, has your, has you got this constant little bit of your brain switched on being a game retailer when you're playing everything? Is, is it constantly, if you're playing something old going, I better get a couple more copies of that in the, in the store. If there's something new that's only just arrived on the shores, you know, by then, is it too late to make those kind of decisions? Are you, or are you having to, having to play something or play it or buy it blind? How, how does it work? So firstly, you've got to understand that I have a pathological desire to make people happy, <laughs> which is a fundamental flaw as a retailer. <laughs> because if you've got to have everything that everybody wants when they walk in the door and that somebody leaving not getting what they want, makes you feel fundamentally unhappy. Yep. You need an Andrea that says, this is the stock level. I'm going to give you that at the beginning of each month and it's got to stop growing. <laughs> <laughs> Even snakes and ladders. <laughs> so um, to, to answer your question on a more serious nature, it's, uh, it's a tricky one because obviously there are hundreds of new games that come out all the time. Yep. There's a couple of things. Firstly, I rely on, as we've become known more as a uh, specialist board game store, and I think now probably one of the best in Australia for range of board games, we rely, we get a lot of feedback from people. So you first thing is you listen to the feedback. The um, guys like Renee, great fans of the show, will write to me and say, Charles, this is coming out in... 2025 <laughs> got to be on it and it's like okay we'll make a note of that it's got to be on it. seven years down the track got to be on yeah. it. um but guys like renee are really good for that in providing you the early heads up on things they like the there's a couple of distribution companies uh that are really hammering hard into this space and they will give you heads up on what is coming in next now the problem is uh 
know, you can put in a pre-order for it. It's great. You don't actually know how many you're going to get because if it's swamped, you might get allocated down. Mm -hmm. So I don't do pre-orders, which is probably something I should look at doing at least sort of a couple of pre-orders for each thing that comes in. And then there is the question of I go to BGG and it's got seven ratings and four <laughs> comments and it's currently 10 out of 10. <laughs> so Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So there is, and, and to further complicate it, then there is what Kickstarter should have been backing. Yeah, of course. Uh, so and the Kickstarters is getting a little, is this a bit, a bit like the same. It's you, people come to you and say, you're going to be backing this Kickstarter. And then now that I've backed a few, uh, starting to know the companies that produce them, they will then get onto you and say, we've got another one coming. And then I look at it and go, yeah, I'll probably get a um, retailer pack for that. Yeah. Which is something that I've definitely noticed, especially in, at least the last six months, the amount of, as you said, um, retailer packages available on Kickstarters has gone through the roof. It's nearly, it used to be a, you know, one in 10 shot that a game would have that on there. Now it's, it's nearly a 50% thing, which is, I think, great. I don't know why nearly every game doesn't, oh, obviously shipping things happen, distribution happens, I get it. But all the bigger companies, that's, it's very good that they're finally getting on it and they're realizing that people want them as soon as they can get them. So why not? And they also are, some of them are exclusively just working with brick and mortar stores as well. Mm. Excellent. And that actually helps us because particularly for Kickstarter, a lot of the online just discount the absolute. Yeah. They're, they're on margins that they, they, it's virtually impossible to be making money unless you sell all the copies all up front, all in advance. Yeah. Yeah, so, that's crazy. And then it's not, you're not even taking into account the fact that we're paying a lot of the time in foreign currencies where the, the currency yeah. fluctuation is making or breaking the profit. Yeah, so, so I, I take a longer-term view on the Kickstarters uh, that I'm probably buying things that I will sell over the next three years, yeah. even if I only buy six of them. So let's take one at the moment. There's the Hall of the Mountain King. Ah, yes. Yes. Well, I have the Deluxe version with the expansion etc and i've sold two of eight mm -hmm. but i think when i bring it to BorderCon next year i'll sell another one and then there'll be a couple of others and and interestingly in around about 2022 mm -hmm. there'll be a run on it there we go that's the call is it well it takes that long to get exposure if it's not one of the big ones that gets an s SDJ nomination. Yep. It can take that long to filter out into people's consciousness that it exists. Yeah. Then they come to our store because we have these small, unique batches of things. Fantastic. That's really interesting, actually. Yeah. Because I remember we we spoke to, gosh, it might have been Alan Chang from Rule and Make, who yep. you know obviously have have you know pulled up stumps and they announced yesterday it was their last day of, of anything you know unfortunately but yeah for them it was all about the pressures of those first really tight window of sales because otherwise all yep. that effort was for, for virtually naught and you know in fact for nothing you were losing money on it yeah and the if you think about it let's say that you run a uh, 45 or 50 percent margin which is what most retailers run mm-hmm if you buy six games and you only sell five, you're breaking even. Yeah. If you don't sell that sixth game, you're not making money. Yep. And that can be brutal. Sure let can. alone not selling, <laughs> let alone having four of six sitting there. <laughs> you know, it's, um, yeah. Well, That's why you need your staples there to, to be able to sell. And those, those reliable ones like your Catans and Carcassones and you know, those, they um, no doubt are just the perennial favourites. Yeah, I guess you get lucky enough in this day and age that there are so many different kinds of gamers that nearly anything that comes out is probably going to be somebody's cup of tea, whether it's not liked by a majority, there'll still be a few people. I mean, we come across that. We come across games that we're like, this has got, you know, people have told me this isn't great and I've played it and it's spectacular. What are they talking about? Yeah. You just can't really tell until you get something like, say, what's a good example? Say something like a Seafall where everybody probably copped that on the chin. <laughs> yep. 
<laughs> and yet I had someone come in the other day who bought it from the store and loved it. Yep. You there just, you go. See, something shows what I know. <laughs> it's, um, came in specifically to buy it, took it home, said to them, how's it going? They said, we're really enjoying it. it that's Excellent. fantastic. And then, but and others, to give you an example, I can tell you already that um, Forgotten Waters or Forbidden Waters, I think it's Forgotten Waters, mm-hmm. the latest yeah. Crossroad Games. Yeah. That's selling like crazy. Yeah. It's the next, it's, it's the next Mice and Mystics or, you know, that kind of story style mm. game. Yeah. So it's, it's going to go well. Um, yeah. Well, let's talk about games that you like playing, not just selling. So what have you been playing lately, Charles, that has been um, the table favourite? So I live in a house where I have bred my children to be gamers. Nice, my children, children now being 26 and 20, so not really children anymore. <laughs> and we have played probably the better part of 80 to 100 games of Terraforming Mars through COVID. Wow. Some days it was three games a day. That is amazing. Leon? Yeah. What have you well, got to Well, I say just about want to that? know before we go into this in more detail, is the person that always goes after the plants, do they win every single time? No. Nope. Ah, good. My, so you found a way son, to stop that person. Good. I'd like to hear that. My son took us down yep. in five rounds. Wow. Three player game, five rounds. He scored 54 points and won. There we go. <laughs> he just, and he just went with a smash and grab policy. I think we had two plants on Mars. We had lava flows. We had nuclear explosions. We had <laughs> asteroids falling out of the sky. And he just hammered the bejesus out of us. And it was like, wow. That was like a game of terraforming Mars in an hour and a quarter. And... <laughs> And we were just brutalized. So um, the other the other tactic that gets used a lot in my family is uh, Jovian tags. Oh, okay. Yep. And then you pick up your Ganymedes uh, multipliers on Jovian tags. Uh, and we have been known to pick up 40 to 60 points on cards. There we go. Well, we should talk about this. So surely you're going all in on the million dollar Kickstarter that's out there now for, for all the terraforming <laughs> bits and pieces. Look, I looked at it and I did the sums and it was, I don't know, five or 600 Australian dollars <laughs> by the time our PISO exchange rate was factored in. And I just can't look the, I play games to play them. I'm not a collector, unfortunately, and this became obvious to me when I had a copy of uh, Martin Wallace's Ankmork Pork that was one of the deluxe copies. Yep. And I just threw it in the games library. <laughs> and somebody said to me at, at LFG Sydney, do you realise this is like a signed version with the deluxe? I'm like, yeah. Yep. <laughs> and they're like, what's it doing in the library? And I'm like... <laughs> Because games are to be played. Yeah. And they're like, well, I think I got the look at that particular stage of you're a heathen. Leave yeah. us alone. Don't, <laughs> don't contaminate our space anymore. So I looked at it and I thought, for me, and everybody's different, but for me, I, I play them to play them. And you almost become, particularly with a library uh, and managing a library, you almost become things are going to wear out, things are going to get lost. It's just cardboard and can be replaced. Yeah, so, not if it's plastic molded stuff though, then that, they're know. indestructible apparently. What do you reckon, Leon? Did, did did Charles make a mistake here? Uh no, not at all. He's got the absolute right attitude as far as I'm concerned. Again, games are for the playing. Hence why when I get games that I know I'm not going to play again, I sell them off at a discounted rate to people that I know are probably going to enjoy them better. Anything so, you've sold off lately that Charles might yes. hate to hear? Yes, because as we were talking about before I pressed the record button. I sold my copy of Terraforming Mars because three or four friends, former Dice Men Mark, that's right, former Dice Men Mark, <laughs> being one of them, and our friend Bo and a couple of others, they've all got nearly everything for it. They're going to get all these deluxe pieces and whatnot. But I looked at that Kickstarter and went, do I want to spend, even if it was $200 to, to pimp out this version of the game? And I went, no, it's not going to bring me, it's not going to spark joy in me, Garth. Oh, so I decided, go. no. And I thought, if I don't want to do that, 
Maybe I don't need to have the game there sitting there looking at me. Maybe I don't need to have it. Maybe someone else might enjoy it. Put it up for sale and it was gone seconds later and I will now use that money to buy something else. Well, good thing you've got a nice online retailer that you can buy games for, I guess. Yes, I so certainly we, do. <laughs> we better cut to a little break um, because we've been talking for a fair old while. Now, Charles, you may or may not know that we do a little LFG ad when we go to and from breaks. I do know that. Do you, do do you feel that. up to the challenge of doing your own ad before we go to a little whatever Leon's going to put in between, between breaks? Sure. All right. Well, the mic is yours. This is Charles from LFG. Our goal is to find the game that matches you and your playing group and that you're going to get off the shelf and actually get on the table. There you go. On that note, you should give yourself an opportunity to do that at lfg-aus.com.au. You with the Dice Men Cometh and we will be back after this. Hey, everyone. It's your angry neighbourhood Scott here. Are you sick of your friendly neighbourhood Leon popping up halfway through the podcast every time and asking you to jump onto Patreon? Well, you know how you can get rid of him. How about you actually contribute to Patreon? Personally, I like to feed a dice man once a year at LFG, and this year I'm planning on feeding all three. But quite frankly, if you don't appreciate the work that the dice men are doing, why are you on this podcast at all? Why don't you chuck him a few dollars... It's as easy as giving a dollar a month. You won't even know it missing. And of course, you'll be supporting great broadcasting and Australian board gaming. Bye for now. So here we are back on The Dice Men Cometh, the biggest and most proudest board gaming podcast in the Southern Hemisphere, brought to you by our good friends at LFG Australia. Check them out at lfg-aus.com.au. And I'm not just saying that because the boss is quite literally right next to me right now. I'm saying it's because they're good at what they do and you should support them. So, Garthy boy, speaking of giving somebody all of your money, we played a little game face-to-face not that long ago, didn't we? I know. It was the first time in how long? Uh, I don't know. Two, three, two months, I think. Months and months and months. Even though we sit in front of computers... Very, very often uh, doing this kind of thing. Yeah, it was the first time we were in the same place at the same time. And it was fun, Leon. It was really fun. Yes, we wanted to absolutely scream at each other and really, really get the nitty gritty and the things that we kind of like to do. But it didn't happen as much as what we expected to do, did it? No, it didn't. So the game we're talking about is Stockpile by Naru Games, designed by Seth Van Orden and Brett Sobel. Now, I got the Epic Edition, which is essentially a Kickstarter one that came out. I got it maybe late last year or early this year. It's all a bit of a hodgepodge, to be perfectly honest. But this is a game all about the money. It is a fast-paced economic game of corporate investments, insider trading and market manipulation. And all you are trying to do is end the game with the most money at the table. Now, it's a really quick game. The whole thing probably only goes for 45 minutes to an hour and even less if you don't have to teach people how to play it because playing it's really, really simple. You will basically start by finding out what's going to happen over the market. There's going to be some open information about some shares going up or down. Each player is going to get a little bit of hidden information, which will be a share type that's going up or down as well. And that's how it's going to start before then people will basically manipulate various stockpiles, putting down stocks, putting down some trading fees to make um, piles more or less desirable as they see fit. And once that's all done, around and around the table, you will go where people will bid for a certain stockpile. Now, the stockpiles, as I say, will contain potentially shares. They will contain some fees that are bad. They might contain some interesting goodness. But you're not going to know because when you have placed stockpiles down, every player is going to get two cards and one of them has to be placed placed face up, which is awesome. One of them has to be placed face down, which is also not quite as awesome because it's really hiding some information that makes it really tricky to make an educated choice. But that's part of the fun. 
Yeah, it's a mechanic that I've seen quite a lot in the last few years, and I'm more than happy for it to be in many games for years to come, that mechanic of you build different piles and then people get to select piles so you can make them how you want them. You can put some negative here, some positive there. You can hide some information, as you said, to people. It's a really cool interactive mechanic that um, I think has gotten a lot of love and I really enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's simple. It doesn't yeah. take much at all to, to figure out. After that, you're going to go around and everyone's going to bid for whichever one of the stockpiles. Now, there's always going to be the same number of stockpiles available as there are players at the table and the game plays up to five. Yeah. So you'll go around. You can only ever bid as much money as you've got. People, if you play with some of the expansions, you'll play a certain investor type and they might have a special ability which will mess people's plans up. But basically, the round will end when everyone has won one of the stockpiles, depending on what they've bid. You can win a stockpile if you bid zero because no one else wanted that one. It's just nice. Leon, you did that to, to really not great effect. I did. I did come absolutely dead last in this game, which is my want, as, as, I, as I do. After the first round, I was winning, and I will claim that as a victory, <laughs> as I do in every single game that I ever play. Um, but yeah, it was one of those things where I do kind of wish that there was a way to put a little bit more tension into the game, possibly in that bidding mechanic. Because I kind of do feel that like, sadly, because there is four stacks you can pick and there were four players when we played, if you were the, first, the last person in order, you kind of did get to cherry pick and go, well, at least one of these I could probably grab for zero right now if I wanted to. Just a matter of if you wanted to. Um, which, yeah, I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> Now, Charles, you haven't played this, but you did watch a little bit of a, a video. Have you played uh, Cyclades at all, perhaps? No, I haven't played Cyclades. Um, no. But the video reminded me of a couple of things that, a couple of things I like in games. Yeah. The first is for anyone that's ever played the traditional card game 500, there is a hidden kitty put in the middle. And I know I have a weakness for the hidden kitty because I know that the really good cards are in there. So I look at this game and know that I would be easily swayed by those piles with face down things in them because you just never know what treasure might be lurking within there. And unfortunately, that tends to lead me to overbid. And possibly the worst one was the adventurers where inevitably I am the one stuck in the temple as the roof collapses because <laughs> I just thought I'd take one more step to see what was behind that. So I kind of like that part. And the second part I liked in the look of it was uh, a bit like a choir, which is an older game. Um, you hold stocks in your hand and you can sort of keep a bit of a track of who's got what stocks and who might be doing what without having absolutely full knowledge. So part of the fun is trying to predict that I reckon so the person on the other side of the table is trying to collect this type of share. And why don't I just see whether I can drive the price of that down yeah. through the floor just a bit. And, and there certainly is gap because there's, there's six different stocks in the game and they're always going to be all in the, in the deck and, and everyone will be wanting everything because essentially the, the value of stocks is going to go up and down every single round. And there will be little cards that manipulate the stocks by a couple of bucks here and a couple of bucks there. And really interestingly is, is if a stock gets up to its maximum value, it splits and every one of those stocks is now worth double its value, which is excellent. And if it tanks and gets bankrupt, every one of the stocks that you have and the table has just are immediately discarded. And there are agonizing weeps at the table as people find that what was really wealthy and really valuable a little while ago, Leon, is, is not worth so much anymore, hey? Yeah, it's exactly what happened to me. I was after <laughs> some of the, the green stock. I can't remember the company's name at the moment. It split. It was earning me an absolute fortune. And I realized... I think I need to sell these because lo and behold, by the end of the game, which was about two rounds later, it was the lowest valued stock on the entire board. Oh, yeah. And did I mention I come dead last? Did I mention that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I couldn't hear you from my victory perch because I, I won. Now, it must yeah. be said here that the great thing about the Epic Edition is it contains all of the expansions that have been, been released so far. So yeah. there allows you to have these modular expansions to vary your gameplay should you want to you know, play it again a different, a different way. Um, you've got, as I say, investors. You've got forecast dice which give you much more variability in the ebbs and flows of the, the market volatility, I guess. You've got 
investment strategies, which are little one-off powers that you can do. You've got other little set collection micro games in here should you choose to play it. So it can go from a really condensed, you know, I think with experienced players, even half an hour or so, you could be, be pretty much getting this down up to probably more than double that time, depending on all the expansions you want to throw in. So you can tailor it quite a bit. Well, we put in multiple of them for the first time we ever played it and they just fit absolutely seamlessly. It's one of those things where, as you said, they're just little modular things and some of them, they just like one of them gives everyone an each an individual player power, much like say a terraforming Mars or a King of Tokyo. You're never not going to use that. It's not hard to learn and it's always going to make the game more interesting. So I did much say that all the different modules that they add uh, are very good, but it's a good thing that you can add what you want and not have what you want. Some modules like in some expansions are like, you can only use this if you use such and such else as well. That's all well and good, but if it muddies the setups or muddies the way that you play, they're the ones that I'm least likely to put in half the time. Whereas if I'm given the option of, these are all separate, put them in if you want, or if you don't, they're more likely to get onto the version of the table. Indeed. Now let's get down to the actual crux of this game. Which is, I bought it because I wanted to get the new version of Chinatown. I wanted to get a, a new version of a game that is just all about negotiation, about manipulation, about screwing over everyone else who isn't me at mm. the table. And it's not that kind of game. It just no. isn't that kind of game. I was really hoping with this stock manipulation, it would be a lot more cutthroat. But just with the fact that everyone's going to win a stockpile, that is going to happen every single time. Yeah. Everyone's always going to get something. Now, admittedly, the pile of what you get may not be what you want and it may not be very good, but it's almost always going to better your position. And that is not something that a Chinatown can ever be accused of. Quite often you'll end up with a lot of garbage, especially if your negotiation skills aren't too red hot. Mm. But we found during this game that it was just a bit nice yeah and which well we weren't expecting it and we didn't want to be a bit nice like i said we wanted to get stuck in after two months of away from everybody we had yeah. some built up anxiety and we had some things to say to each other yeah exactly um but yeah that was the thing that and you know i guess this is going to spill quickly into kind of my thoughts about the game is that halfway through the game i had my finger ironically, over lfg-oz.com.au, thinking I might pick up a copy of this game. I was really enjoying it. And even at the end of it, I really enjoyed it. However, it got to the point where we did realise, once the game had finished, that if we, say, got to a certain point in the game and realised Garth is winning, we need to stop Garth. We don't think we could have done it because the interactivity between this game and a game that you would assume, since it's about you know stocks and stuff, that there'd be a bit more player interaction, a bit more negotiation. It's just not there, which is a very disappointing, sadly. It is, because we finished this game and, and all four of us around the table sort of just took that moment. And, you know, we just went, because you know with certainty that every single stock, every one of the six stocks is going to go up by a little bit or by down by a little bit, or very occasionally the, the stock will pay a dividend. So for every share you have, you can show that and get $1,000, which you know is always going to be good. But if you've got a bit of everything, which a lot of the time you do, because you just want to have more stocks, you'll always just cash in stocks at the end of the game. There will be a bonus for the player who has the most of each of the six types of stocks. So that's important as well. But you're never really going to want to get rid of stocks unless you need them to be cashed out for physical money. So there's, it's a, it's a tough balancing act. We, in both cases, at the very, very end, I was happy just to sit tight and see what the market did because I figured I had enough stuff it would all work out in the wash anyway. So when you compare it to something like a Zularetto, where I'm really tortured, do I just take the truck that's got a single animal in it because that is the animal I want? Yeah. Or do I wait one more round before somebody throws an animal I definitely don't want in the truck that's <laughs> going to end up in the barn I'm going to have to kill? You know, and we don't want to kill animals um, because that's going to hurt me. Something yep. like Zularetto gets that tension of the pile in the middle being, when do I take it? Yeah. 
Yeah, it definitely has that, I think, in this game because it still does have that, is my stock going to go up, is it going to go down, kind of nail-biting stuff to it, which is great, but that's your decision to make, really, and there's not really much else that the other players on the table are going to be involved in that decision. So that tension isn't there. But in a game like this, I expected it to be, so maybe it was more about our expectations going into it because that was, like I said, that was the thing that kind of got me and rather annoyed me at the end of it. I was like, this is really good, and I can I enjoyed playing this game so much, but from an actual mechanical sense, like I said, we thought, if you know who's going to win, you can't stop them. It's almost like, what's the point, almost? I really want to play it again, but then in the back of my mind, it's kind of like, eh, is it going to end up being roughly the same? So, I don't know. I'm very conflicted. <laughs> This is this may fall into the category of one of those games that works well for families that don't like conflict. I could say so, so yeah. We we get people into the store who say, I really want a simple to learn family style game, but my thirteen my my eleven year old throws an absolute fit when the thirteen year old repeatedly beats them. Yep. So this may, and particularly when the 13 year old beats them through some kind of mechanism that involves actually making their life miserable <laughs> to beat them. So we do, there is a definite market there for games like this where the take that component to it is either not obvious or is um, uh, yeah, less pronounced. Yeah, it's very much, I mean, nearly every game is these days. It is very much a monopoly killer in that sense because you don't have the, I'm going to go out of my way to destroy somebody because you can't really do it. You do have to kind of just make, there's a bit of luck involved and also a bit of skill in the things that you bid on and the piles that get put out there, which is all well and good. But yeah, don't expect heaps of cutthroat and stabby stabby. (laughs) No, absolutely. And in fact, sitting around the table in the the post-game discussion, I, I did say... I think I can play this with my family, which is certainly not my expectation going in. I was just checking there. The side of the box says 13 plus. Nah, no. you can play that well and truly with kids younger than that. So I am going to get my, my kids around the table and play this because very funny what you mentioned, Charles, is, is that's kind of our, our family dynamic. We play almost always uh, cooperative games because mm. the kids don't want to have lost either to each other or definitely not to their old man. That's for sure. So we've got horrified. Uh, that's been a, a regular favorite at the table. So I've, I've, I've thought that this could be a way where there's enough happening just in the, the cards you are dealt that you can't control. These are just the cards that you've gotten. These are the stocks that are going to go up and down. So you've got a little bit of agency, but not enough for it to be a make or break situation on the fun scale. So I'll have to report back when I've actually done this. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, the game definitely looks good. The components are good. Like I said, all those different cool modules you can add are grand. I think it's a game that everyone should give a crack to. I'm not going to flat out say, don't play it. And I'm not going to flat out say, you need to buy it. It's excellent. I honestly think it's very much in the middle of those two things because the experience was great, but there was just a few things about it I wasn't sure about. But it's something because of that that I would recommend highly, highly that people play and see what they think. And if it fits them, it could fit your game group perfectly. So there you go. That was Stockpile. And yeah, if you can find a copy. Charles, have you got it yet? Uh, I've had it for a couple of years. I just have to check whether we've got... I backed the Kickstarter probably two years ago and got it in the expansion. Yep. I just have to check whether we still have... can't remember off the top of my head whether we still have copies or whether we sold out. Well, yeah. you'll have to have to find out. All on the website. Head to the At- website and that'll tell you whether it's in stock. Uh, I, I think that website is lfg-aus.com.au, if I'm not mistaken. It is indeed, Garth. That's, that's exactly the one. Wonderful. Well, look, we better wrap up this episode. Now, Charles, you did mention, obviously, that LFG is, uh, runs events. So there haven't been many of those so far in, in 2020. And... Um, there was going to be an event of yours in about, what, a week and a half's time? Week and a bit's time? Yeah, we were going to fly over to see you and now we're not allowed to. What's up with that? What have you done? Rub, rub some lemon juice into my paper cuts, sure. <laughs> some more salt into that open wound. Yeah. Um, well, didn't the world change? Absolutely. Didn't the world change. March, we were preparing... For LFG Sydney, which was indeed to be the 10th of July. So this Friday week, we would have been all travelling up to Sydney to set up and 
welcome our favourite dice men up to come and have a weekend of gaming. And then it's going it to be my first t- LFG. Oh. And then it just all turned pear-shaped. Um, so we basically had to make a call, really had to make a call in about April or late May, just after Neil had to make a call about BorderCon. Yeah. And the call was we couldn't see things returning in our case to an area where we could have 500 people in a hall, uh, particularly once the four square metre rule came in and the metre and a half rule, we couldn't see. So we, we cancelled LFG Sydney. We've also, for the last 10 years, been running tournaments. Uh, the, the national titles for Settlers, was we were looking at the scheduling for that to be run in early August mm-hmm. this year. Having typically, we would run Melbourne, uh, we'd run that in Sydney this year, and we would have run a Melbourne and a Canberra precursor to that. So yeah. that all got shut down. When uh, Catan Studios made the decision to move the 2020 World Championships to 2021, we just followed suit. So we just shut down everything for this year and we'll start again next year for that. Yeah, okay. Uh, LFG Sydney, the, I, mean, I don't know whether the Bankstown Sports Club is open yet. Um, for those that have been there, Leon, you've been there, I believe. You came yes. up. It is a place that I cannot describe. No, um, it's, it's, it's just surreal. <laughs> um, but you're talking an entire city block that's got faux Italian streets in their pizza restaurants and just a cassowary under the stairs and waterfalls. and it, It's... I hope the place survives. I don't know how a lot of these places are going to go. I don't know what their financial state was beforehand and how they will survive through. Um, but I hope it will be there next year. And if it's there next year, we will run LFG Sydney there next year. Great to hear. Excellent. Uh, and we will happily be there as well. Yes. And which leads me to there is still hope in a galaxy far, far away. There is hope. <laughs> Lovely that Essen Unplugged, which is currently scheduled for the last weekend in November, somewhere around the 25th of November weekend, that we can make something happen. Uh, We will be talking to the venue over the next period and working out what is the art of the possible. Yeah. And I don't know what the art of the possible is, but I can tell you that I'm chomping at the bit for a games expo no matter what. And I'm quite sure that I've got a couple of Tasmanians who'll fly up and play games. Absolutely. You've got more than a couple, mate. You've got at least well, half a dozen off the top of my head and I bet there's going to be a lot more. <laughs> so um, we'll try and get Essen Unplugged. I'll be writing to all the publishers shortly to see because for many of them, the way their model normally works is we have to pick up demo games in Essen because their first shipment of new games actually goes straight to Essen. It doesn't go to, it is on the water for the international distributors while Essen is occurring. But if I want something from Stronghold, generally I have to go to Essen to pick it up because that's where the first ones appear. Yeah. So done over the last few years anyway. Yeah. Um, And so we will have to talk to them about what we can get out as far as the new stuff. That said, a lot of the new stuff is arriving. Nova Luna arrived in the store today. So we have some new stuff that we will definitely have available ourselves, even if not, uh, even if not from the publishers. So that will be the goal. Bring on November. Yes. In Canberra. And may, we, may the gods smile favourably in our directions. Uh, I, I can't wait. I've, I've been to the last two Essen Unplugs and they've been such a great weekend of gaming and great opportunities to reconnect with, with plenty of friends around the table. So oh, we're crossing fingers and toes and everything else we can cross for you, Charles. Yep. Well, look, um, it's been absolutely wonderful for you to make time and speak with us. And as our long-term sponsor, um, obviously we want to say thank you so much for your ongoing support. Uh, it is absolutely um, amazing the support you show for for the dice men and for board gaming in Australia as well. So from uh, from our island to the nation's capital, thank you very much. All right, and from our island to your island, <laughs> and if one thing you learn in a global pandemic is an island's a good thing to have. <laughs> <laughs>
Yes. Uh, it's it's our pleasure to sponsor you, and it really is. We have a great community in Australia around board gaming, so let's hope that we can get November up. Yeah, absolutely. That'll be fantastic. We will definitely be there at the door ready for the opening game, so we cannot wait. So, look, thanks so much, Charles, from LFG to uh, spend some time with us. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Uh, one more time, for those of you listening at home, please go on to lfg-aus.com.au to check out all the gaming options that LFG can offer you in terms of hopeful events that will be coming up in the second half of the year, being able to buy your games. And obviously, if you're in and around the Canberra area, make sure you go to... It's Canberra. Is that the that where it Canberra is? With, Canberra with a K. There we go. Canberra in Canberra. So thanks again so much, Charles. It's been wonderful. And um, that's pretty much all I've got to say. Leon, over to you. Yeah, no, well, you've pretty much said it all. It's great to have um, Charles here. It's also great to have LFG, one of the best in Australia, if not the best, as our sponsor. We couldn't ask for better. And always happy to, to, to have people like that on that share the same passion as we do to get people around a table and get that smile on everybody's face. Speaking of which, remember that we still have a couple of competitions kicking on at the moment. Uh, by the time this episode comes out, we might have a new one up and running. Uh, have a look at that on the Facebooks and whatnot and all the different social medias and get into those competitions. We've had lots of great entries over the last couple of months sending out games during this kind of crazy period where having a game sent to your front door can, you know, again, put a smile on the face of a lot of people. And we need to quickly mention before we wrap up the episode again, that thank you very much to, to Mark. Now Who? we're going to be, we're going to be sincere for about 30 seconds here and say that um, he is a good friend to both of us and we wish him all the best. He is still around. He is still very much our friend. And he started this human Trent and they did a smashing job and we will hope to carry that on for as long as we can. But we'll see how things go. You never know. And who knows who's going to be joining us in the future. But from now on, me and Garth will be kicking along with all these fun guest hosts and see how it goes. Absolutely. So au revoir, Mark. It's been a long time and a well-deserved rest for an old fella. So hopefully his retirement comes around soon too. Yes, now you get to be the old guy, Garth. I get hey. to make fun of you for being old. We need to get like, right. somebody like an 18-year-old in here so I can be an old guy too. It looks like fun. Yeah. Well, look, it's past my bedtime, so we better wrap sure. this up. So for episode 309, that's it. So we'll see you next time. Bye. See you, mate. Bye. You've been listening to another episode of The Dice Men Cometh, proudly brought to you by LFG Australia. Be sure to check out lfg-oz.com.au for all the details of their flagship events, LFG Sydney and LFG SN Unplugged, as well as their online and physical retail store. You can find us at dicemencometh.com or on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And don't forget, you can support us on Patreon too. Thanks for listening.